Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. I'm your host, Sean Creighton. In my current role as NACU president, I have the honor of working with an amazing group of independent colleges and universities. I'm a huge admirer of their approach to teaching and learning. They provide an integrated, liberal, professional, and civic education. As a result, the NACU campuses graduate extraordinary professionals for a global workforce and society. Also, their campuses are beautiful. About our podcast, we will focus on topics related to higher education. We will bring in guests that wrestle with current and future challenges. They'll include college presidents, provosts, professors, researchers, authors, disruptors, reporters, strategists, and maybe even a futurist or two. They'll help us expand our window into the world of higher ed. Thank you for being here. And without further ado, let's get started. Today, I'm joined by Mary Marcy, president of Dominican University of California. Throughout her distinguished career in higher ed, President Marcy has developed major education reform and diversification initiatives, supported the advancement of faculty and students, introduced innovative programming, and enhanced the reputation at each of the institutions she's served. President Marcy has presented and published extensively on issues facing small colleges and is regularly quoted in the media related to her research and her initiatives, including the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Times Higher Education, the San Francisco Chronicle, NPR, the Chronicle of Higher Ed, and Inside Higher Ed. Her latest book, The Small College Imperative, Models for Sustainable Futures, has become a must-read for college leadership. And she's definitely one of my superheroes. Mary Marcy, welcome to the NACU Podcast. Oh, thanks so much. I really want to jump in by asking you to tell us a little bit about Dominican University of California and, and how awesome it is. <laughs> it is a pretty awesome place, actually. And in some ways, it's awesome because it looks like a lot of colleges and universities around the country. And in others, I think we've really distinguished ourselves in some interesting areas. So you know, the parts that are familiar to, to anybody who knows small colleges is that we have a mix of solid liberal arts and professional programs, a mix of undergraduate and graduate programs. The places that, that start to get more interesting uh, in terms of differentiating us we are in, in the Bay Area in California, and I often say that we look like California, which means we look like the future of the country. So our mm. students are highly diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, almost two-thirds of our students are students of color uh, from all different backgrounds. About a third are first in their family to go to college, usually a quarter to a third are Pell eligible. So you, in, in that sense, I think of us as a place that's an experiment uh, about the future of higher education, mm-hmm. particularly the future of small colleges and their ability to serve uh, this particular profile of student. And we've had some, some great success uh, in those areas. We've got very high student retention. It's increased a lot in the last few years. Of, we've implemented something called the Dominican Experience, which is basically four high-impact practices that happen for every student, um, integrative advising, digital portfolio, signature work, and some type of community or civic engagement. And those things seem to really work for our students. So we've had a lot of success with retention. We've had a lot of success post-graduation. We're actually 
one of the top 10 institutions in the country for students' um, early career salaries after they graduate. Mm. And that's a, a real number. It's controlled by major. Uh, so we can, you know, it's actually an apples to apples comparison. It's exciting to us because we're the only one in the top 10 that's not considered a, would not be considered a typically elite college. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. number one is Harvard, number nine is Stanford, and number 10 is Dominican. So it's kind of one of these things is not like the other. And I think it goes back to that um, level of engagement we have with our students. Yeah, well, congratulations on that. I was reading about that and also about the Dominican experience and how it's um, transformed, I guess, reality for the students and some of the successes you mentioned already around student success, student satisfaction, graduation rates, and the other kind of measurements that we use sometimes when we, when we look at the impact we're having. And I also read that it was your vision. You know, you led to the creation of this. And so I, I was curious about, you know, you sharing some of the insight and how you kind of came up with this Dominican experience and the vision for it and what may have influenced you. It was very organic to the campus. And I think, you know, one of the main reasons I accepted the presidency in the first place is because I thought there was real alignment between the work I had been either doing or exposed to as far as what leads to student success and the things the campus had already started to engage with. So when I arrived, there was a strategic plan that was pretty cumbersome. It had a lot of initiatives. But when you looked at the initiatives that were just institution-wide and focused on the student experience, there were really only four. And they were all tied to high-impact practices. Mm -hmm. And I'd spent a lot of time before I came here not only leading campuses, but doing research and thinking about what makes a difference in in students' experience in college. And like a lot of us, I'd been exposed to the good research on high-impact practices that George Q and others have done. And so the conversation really started there with the existing strategic plan. And then we had a series of meetings on campus, what we call presidential listenings. (laughs) The key is that the president listened instead of talked like I'm doing today. And we took George Q's writing, some of the AACNU work, and had the faculty lead discussions on those and talk about how, where we thought we could be most successful at mm-hmm. implementing some of those pieces. It was really a, a marriage of some of the great research that's happened on student learning and good pedagogy and an institution that was really eager to embrace and, and have that conversation. Yeah. Have you seen this approach being replicated other places nowadays, or are a lot of people reaching out to you because of your success? We've had a lot of conversations about this uh, particular space. Yes, it's really interesting. There are a lot of institutions that are, I think, trying to move beyond saying, you know, our attraction is we're offering this array of programs and starting to say this is a particularly distinctive student experience regardless of your major. And yeah, we have had a lot of discussions about Mm -hmm. that with colleagues around the country I would say it's not quite as far along as, you know, like some of the work that you do in NACU to, to bring institutions together, but it's along the same lines. It, mm-hmm. It's taking current realities and current research and kind of naturally drawing institutions together from, from all over the country. Well, whenever I have the honor of talking to a president who uh, has been in a role for 10 years or more and has been successful in that role, I wanted to have you reflect a little on your success and uh, some of the key factors. <laughs> well, 10 years <laughs> does feel like a long time. It's, uh, I said to a colleague the other day, it's not that they're all 
dog years, but some years are more doggish than others <laughs> in these jobs, I think, in terms of the lifting. And I have to say, there, I certainly, you know, compared to um, Leon Botstein, who I, I worked for, or my good colleague Pat McGuire or Freeman Hrabowski, I suppose it's a, it's a mm-hmm, modest number, mm-hmm. but it's a good number for a president. It's been a long enough tenure that we feel like we can have accomplished, you know, primarily what I came to do. And then it becomes um, kind of a natural transition point, and you start to ask yourself, this strategic plan is, is coming to fruition. Am I ready for the next big series of ideas and next mm-hmm. big series of, of initiatives, uh, or is it time for someone else to take that over? Because I think if I stayed one or two more years, I probably wouldn't do a whole lot more significant, mm-hmm. and that wouldn't feel good. <laughs> but if I was going to stay, I'd probably need to stay another five years or more and take on the next big set of challenges. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like it was time to step aside because of that, because uh, I did not have the same. I, have, I love the institution. I have great colleagues and a great team, but I, was, I, I didn't quite have the energy and the focus to take on the next big set of challenges in this role. Well, since you you know you made that decision, I'm sure it was a difficult decision. I you know I want to give you a moment to uh, kind of reflect on some real cherished times at Dominican, like something that really comes to mind that you, over the last ten years that you'll take away with you. I'm a political scientist, not a psychologist, but I've heard friends who are psychologists say that often that you know with with all of the research that's done, ultimately it's the the relationship that heals. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the relationships that allow you to to do anything in these roles. So I'm ultimately on this the ability to work together with colleagues who I really not only respect but really enjoy on work that feels meaningful. So there's a broad sense of meaning and, and energy that comes from that, and it, it it expresses itself in specific ways. So a couple of examples. Um, we had a one of the largest donors we've ever had, actually, I think he is the largest donor the institution has ever had, was was uh, quite elderly when I first started talking to him about a major gift. And he wanted to give a gift uh, in honor of his, his wife, who was a nurse. And together, uh, we worked to create a new health sciences complex for the institution. And it was just a labor of love for him. Mm-hmm. And a wonderful thing to, to see created. And about two months before he died, he was able to cut the ribbon on that, that facility. Mm. I still remember walking up the steps with him, and I was on one side, and his wife was on the other. We were both really worried he wasn't going to make it up the mm-hmm. steps, but he was determined to do it and to, to um, have a, not only a lasting legacy, but to bring the kind of joy to someone uh, in their, their final months mm-hmm, of life mm-hmm, in that mm-hmm. way was just really powerful. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the age spectrum is, I don't know how many times at commencement, at some point or another, I end up saying, settle down, settle <laughs> down, and they all laugh at me um, because they're just so excited, especially having the number of first-generation students that we have. Mm-hmm. There's a, a level of joy and celebration and very little entitlement among our students that just... Um, just explodes at commencement in kind of amazing ways. You know, we've been talking for over 10 minutes now and have not mentioned the word COVID. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it has dominated everything in our professional, yes. personal lives. And it's been a pretty rough year for, for the world. And I wondered how you, you know, find balance in 
in your role and keep well um, and how you've done that during this time? I'm really fortunate because of where we live in California. You know, it's not hot. It's not warm. It's not as warm as Southern California, but it's temperate most of the year. And we live in a beautiful part of Marin County. And most mornings um, I hike for about an hour and a half up a very steep hill right outside of campus. I don't even have to get in the car. Mm. And when I get to the top of that hill, I can see three of the bridges in the Bay Area and the Bay and have a sense of perspective. And as I come back down the hill, I'm right above campus and I can see the whole, mm. the whole campus. And before COVID, I could see the campus kind of coming to life, you know, as classes would start and you could see students going to class. There's a little sense of loss in not seeing that, but at the same mm-hmm. time, there's a tangible holding of the institution when I do that. So that's a big part of what I do. Mm-hmm. I do meditate, not as uh, regularly as I would like, but enough, I think, to provide some balance. And I, I often think of it as athletes that run marathons, one of the most important things they do is hydrate all the way through. And if they do, don't do it, they really get into trouble. And I think that's kind of the way we have to think about these leadership roles is getting enough nourishment along the way in whatever form you need it mm-hmm. to be able to, to manage physically and, and emotionally. Wow, that's a great picture that you just painted for us. I wanted to shift to your research and start off by saying, you know, you've been, you've been thinking and writing about the future of higher ed, if I have my math correctly, for 20 years I mean, or more. And you co-authored a piece in 2003 uh, called Dealing with the Future Now, Principles for Creating a Vital Campus in a Climate of Restricted Resources uh, for Change Magazine. And then, you know, fast forward your book, that came out recently, The Small College Imperative, Models for Sustainable Futures, has become a must-read for college leaders. You know, this work that you've done, it's really challenged us. And I, I was almost like, if you could go back in time, knowing what you know today, what has changed? Has anything changed over the last 20 years? You know, where have we made progress? And uh, how are we doing? Well, one thing, if I was going to do it over again, I probably wouldn't write something in 2003 called Dealing with the Future Now when I'm that early in my career. <laughs> a little bit of hubris or set you up for something, I'm not sure what. But it, I mean, it, I think what's interesting is the work that um, we did, and that, that was a, a national project in the future of higher ed that I, I helped lead um, along with Al Guskin from Antioch. Mm-hmm. And the work that we did there, what's interesting to me is some of the questions have been are still very contemporary. And I think some of the institution's reactions to challenges, unfortunately, is, is pretty similar to what we were talking about them. So I think we've gotten much more sophisticated at understanding the diversity of our students, the range of backgrounds, and how we can best serve them. And that's a combination of, of you know, certainly the work that I mentioned before around high-impact practices and good pedagogy, it's also, I think, about coming perhaps too slowly to understand that our students just don't look like they did when mm-hmm. our institutions were created. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most students work. They are from very different backgrounds than the kind of typical upper middle class, white, you know, top of their class in high school that, that used to be assumed. And our institutions have started to adjust to that in good ways. And there's good research that helps us do that both in and out of the classroom. So that, I think, has been real progress. Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten more sophisticated with technology, but we're still wrestling with how to use it effectively. Mm -hmm. 
so we've evolved, but I don't know if technology evolves so fast. I don't know how <laughs> if it's always progress in terms of the of the student experience. Mm-hmm. The place that we haven't shifted a whole lot is how we respond to fiscal austerity. That's starting mm-hmm. to shift, unfortunately, by default. But there's a tendency to say, let's refinance the debt, freeze positions, and basically hunker down until this is over. And you can't do those things forever. You can only do them if the broader picture is going to change. And you either have to hope that society shifts in a way that helps financially, or you have to take the reins and really make sure that the institution is positioned differently to come Mm -hmm. out of it. And I think that has been a challenge for a lot of places. And we are seeing an awful lot of institutions suffer from year-over-year austerity and be in pretty precarious places right now. We've been working on some research in which we've been talking to leaders at schools that are using our benchmarks. We put them into a high-performing category. And, uh, and what we found, and this is, this is like really just a quick summary, but and it's a phrase that kind of captured the mindset. It was no margin, no mission, which came up multiple times or some variation of that. And when we researched it, it came out of healthcare, in fact. And But a real mindset of we have to be financially sustainable and healthy in order to exist and accomplish our mission. And, and they're putting mechanisms in place to create efficiencies and just tighten up the business model. And, and so far, you know, these schools, it's working for these schools and they uh, are just, you know, always kind of being entrepreneurial, but at the same time putting the student first wherever they can. And it's been an interesting kind of project, just listening to different leaders and how they navigate these this very difficult time. It's really hard to do, but it is, um, I think it is the path forward. And I, I think sometimes institutions that are not as wealthy have a little bit more capacity to do it because they aren't assume to be able to go study as she goes and draw on the endowment if there's a problem. Uh-huh. You know, their, their campuses, their boards, their alumni tend to assume that they're going to need to innovate in order to be effective and, and stay financially sustainable. You know, I was thinking about that you wrote the small college imperative in a pre-pandemic world. And if you had mm-hmm. to either not rewrite it, but maybe add a chapter or rethink about some of the things, is there another chapter you would add or Probably the first thing is I wouldn't release a book the literally the first month of the pandemic <laughs> came out. But I think a lot of the lessons and notions drawn in it are still very relevant. I think the places where I would explore more, I don't know that I would change so much that's mm-hmm. in there as I would add. Well, there's two spaces where I have put a marker down thinking I need to explore this more. The pandemic has made that more profound. One is... I talked about educational technology, and I think that's an important question, but I I think I should have broadened it and think more deeply about educational delivery systems. As we come out of the pandemic, I think all institutions, but especially those that have been primarily residential, are now starting to think about, even if we're primarily residential, are we going to be delivering every course, uh, you know, in in a classroom? Or are we going to be more hybrid and more flexible? Mm -hmm. Are we going to offer things wholly online? And there's a whole set of questions um, that go with that space that I think are, are just starting to be explored. The other space that I, I think it's the shortest chapter in the book, and 
uh, which tells you that I, I was more putting a marker down than exploring it deeply, is the evolving role of partnerships and consortia. Mm-hmm. I think that institutions are becoming much more nimble and much more thoughtful about how they work with each other and a little bit less in that kind of each tub on its own bottom mindset. And that's moving pretty quickly as well, mm-hmm. often out of necessity mm-hmm. and a space that I think uh, is worthy of, of further exploration and discussion. Yeah. The fact that I work for a consortia, we're excited about that. <laughs> that that sure. collaboration and consortia becoming even more important. I was in a, on a call the other day in which somebody said that consortia, collaboration and consortia are the salvation for small colleges <laughs> like that. It was like they were just that was their statement. And and wow. and it's like, oh yeah. Absolutely. You in in both small colleges, the small colleges imperative, and then in your recent Inside Higher Ed piece, you talk about the use of essential questions in guiding decision making. You know, I thought I'd give you the opportunity to share with our listeners and think think of them as well current leaders and future leaders some of the essential questions that they need to be carrying around with them, or or at least the ones that you carry with you. Yeah, I think that that um, one of the traps for leaders and presidents can can be the the notion that it's their job to come up with the answer or the solution or the path or the vision or whatever is perceived as needed. And, you know, that can be really tempting. I mean, there's kind of a heroic (laughs) nature to that request, but it's a trap because there aren't any silver bullets and because higher education still works best through shared governance, but I think actually organizations work best when it's not a command and control model. Mm -hmm. And so for me, using essential questions assumes that institutions and people uh, vary, even though we're in similar spaces and, and all in the same industry. It's a way of helping people understand what they're best at and, and inviting them to um, bring that to the fore for the institution. So you know, a good example is, is we talked earlier about the initial work here at Dominican that ultimately led to the Dominican experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, there are, gosh, I think in George Hughes' writing, there's 11 or 12 or 13 um, high-impact practices. There's a lot, more than a small institution could do and guarantee for every student. But we looked through all of them, and then we found the ones where there was energy, passion, expertise, hunger to learn more, Mm. and then we aligned it with our students, and that's how we came up with four rather than, you know, a dozen. Mm -hmm. So the essential questions frame the space so that it's not just free association, and hopefully they frame it within institutional mission market position, you know, the nature of students, nature of your faculty and staff, but ultimately what they do is guide to a shared vision for the future. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that those visions for the future only work if they're developed collaboratively mm-hmm. and people have real investment in them. And then the president's job is not to be Moses and say, this is my vision. <laughs> the president's job is to... to articulate that not only for the campus but for the external community mm-hmm. and that's fun <laughs> that's a fun job <laughs> well what happens next i mean i read that you're going to be moving on to the 
Harvard Graduate School of Education. Is that true? To be continuing to think yeah. about the future? Yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited about it. Um, I'm, I have a visiting scholar position there, and I know I'll work some with the higher ed graduate students and probably spend some time after I just get used to not being a president and have the kind of <laughs> rhythms of my life change a little bit, start to think more deeply about some of these questions and hopefully continue to do some writing and exploration. I, I'm not going to retire. I think I'm probably retiring from the presidency, mm-hmm. <laughs> certainly for now. I led the uh, Bard College at Simon's Rock campus for seven years before I came here. So 17 years in these roles is a long stretch. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping to have space at Harvard to um, have a little bit more reflective time as well as engage with the students and colleagues there. And I'm sure that means writing and speaking and hopefully continuing to have conversations like this. That is very exciting, and I can't wait to uh, hear you speak again and and, uh, read what you're writing and and just continue to connect um, offline as we we both work on making higher education better. So thank you very much for being our guest today on the NACU Podcast. Oh, very much my pleasure. It's great to talk to you, Sean. Thanks for being here for Connect, Collaborate, Champion, a podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities. This podcast is made possible thanks to our partner, public radio station 91.3 WYSO in Yale Springs, Ohio. Thank you, YSO. The New American Colleges and Universities connects our campuses to collaborate in the delivery of innovative ideas and to champion the belief that a comprehensive, liberal, professional and civic education is essential to the future of our world. To learn more about our amazing campuses, visit nacu.edu, N-A-C-U.edu. See you soon.